And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Monday, February 26th, 2024, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our web editors, Daisy Thornton, Michelle Sandiford, and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, will Congress get a budget deal done with only days before the first shutdown deadline? Plus, an update from one of the nation's premier federal law enforcement agencies. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, software security logs are crucial to investigating cyber incidents. Well, now the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency has been urging companies, vendors, to make their logs available to their customers, the government, at no extra charge. Well, now, one of the government's biggest technology vendors plans to, in fact, provide agencies with free logging services. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday joins me with the latest. First of all, what are agencies going to get under this new arrangement and from whom? Of course, yes, starting this month, Microsoft will automatically enable logging capabilities for all federal agencies. Microsoft says it will increase the amount of logging data uh, by up to 10 times in some cases. And the company will also increase the default log retention period from 90 to 180 days. Now, this is all reached under a deal with CISA, the White House Office of Management and Budget, and the Office of the National Cyber Director, uh, along with Microsoft, kind of uh, had been working over the last six months to work on what the company could make available for free. And CISA says these logging capabilities will help agencies meet their requirements under Office of Management and Budget uh, directives for log management. And that was really important in the wake of the software supply chain attack on SolarWinds. For one, many agencies struggled to detect that intrusion because they lacked the necessary network logs. And now, at least in the case of these Microsoft logs, they'll have some more capabilities. And these are logs of Microsoft company that are being generated by the customers using their cloud services, basically? Yeah, the, these logs specifically pertain to uh, how uh, customer users are accessing email and then how the users are uh, working within SharePoint and Exchange. And so essentially, these event logs show when something might be anomalous or unusual about how a user is accessing an email system at the State Department, for instance, or something like that. Microsoft says these will allow uh, basically the users to detect business email compromise, one of the biggest types of cyber attacks, as well as advanced nation state threats, and then even insider risks, which is, of course, a big deal in government. So agencies feel they can use these logs. And so how will they receive them? And what will they do with them once they get them? Well, CISA and Microsoft have also released an expanded cloud log implementation playbook to describe in detail just that, how agencies can use these logs going forward. Uh, you know, the, these new default logging capabilities will be made available uh, as default. So agencies in some cases won't have to do anything. And then they'll just have to figure out how they're going to use these logs and analyze them to support threat hunting and incident response operations. All right. And how did we get to this point? Because I remember it took the government 20 years of back and forth with Microsoft before Microsoft agreed to even share occasionally small parts of its source code. Yeah, it's been an interesting saga over the last few years. Microsoft has received some criticism for charging its customers for logging capabilities. 
there have been a couple flashpoints. I mentioned the SolarWinds hack. That was one of them. After that 2020 incident, there was a 2021 hearing where uh, lawmakers grilled Microsoft President uh, Brad Smith on Microsoft's involvement in, in that incident uh, because some of their services were compromised. Congressman Jim Langevin, a former Congressman Jim Langevin, he actually challenged Smith about charging extra for logging, asking, is this a profit center for Microsoft? And Smith responded, we are a for-profit company. Everything we do is designed to generate a return. But at the same time, Microsoft made some logs available by default for agencies after that incident. Fast forward to last summer, hackers aligned with China were able to steal emails from the unclassified Microsoft accounts of Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo and some high-level State Department officials. And again, these were Microsoft services. After that incident, CISA said it would work with Microsoft to expand free logging capabilities. Now they're available for free to all federal agencies. I should point out, Microsoft still does charge for premium level logging services, so they're not giving away the whole kitchen sink here. Well, logging is something that happens automatically as software is used, so it's really sort of a transmission, gathering, and moving from point A to point B process. It's not as if they're generating data that wasn't being generated already, so I guess you could look at it really both ways. And CISA, of course, has the overall charge of increasing software security as it also works to increase people's cyber readiness. Does this help them with that effort, software security itself? Yeah, this, this is a pretty big development for CISA's secure by design efforts. Last year, CISA really launched this program in earnest to encourage fraud or even shame, in some cases, the technology industry to make their products a little bit more secure by design. And the guidance that CISA has put out actually explicitly calls out how providers should supply high-quality audit logs to customers at no extra charge. So CISA says this is a good step in the right direction with Microsoft making some logging available at no additional charge. And tell us more about the Secure by Design effort. That sounds like a pretty big, broad-based work they're trying to do there. Yeah, it is a big, broad-based work. It's not wholly focused on just government technology vendors. It's focused on the biggest technology vendors writ large and really focusing them on putting security in place earlier in the design phase of technology rather than just focusing on the vulnerabilities and incidents that customers have to deal with as they crop up. CISA put out uh, the second draft of its Secure by Design software white paper in December, and the window for commenting on that white paper actually just closed last week. So we can expect to see CISA putting out some new updates uh, in the coming months on that work. They're also focusing a lot on pushing out what are called secure by design alerts that call out specific practices that technology manufacturers could take to make their products more secure. So there's a lot of activity going on at CISA on the secure by design work. I, my question is, is it even possible to have secure by design? Because the nature of software means somebody will find a way to hack it no matter what you do. Yeah, I think that's right. I think CISA officials have acknowledged that. And the point that they're trying to make in, in many cases we're seeing is that there are some baseline level things that companies can do to at least raise the bar. For those hackers, uh, multi-factor authentication is a big one. We hear a lot about, especially in agencies. Uh, and then eliminating recurring classes of vulnerabilities that we know are responsible for the vast majority of cyber incidents. 
These things in some cases cost money, of course. That's why companies don't necessarily do them by default. So CISA has actually been focusing a lot on the economics of security and asking questions about, hey, how does this cost money? How can we address the economic side of this issue? And getting back to the logging issues with logs coming in from Microsoft, what will be the distribution architecture? Will they send them to CISA and CISA will then distribute them to the agencies or is it direct from Microsoft to the agencies? This is a direct to the agencies. This is a customer issue. And, you know, every agency has a different process for, you know, detecting cyber incidents and investigating and remediating them. But each agency will have to kind of figure out how they're going to use these increased capabilities going forward. And CISA will probably be on the agencies to say, well, use them, guys, since we managed to negotiate you're getting them. Yeah, I think so. I think that's going to be a big deal for agencies. If they're not taking advantage of these, they're going to be called out. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. All right. You got it, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, an update from one of the nation's premier law enforcement agencies. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The U.S. Marshals Service had a busy year arresting no less than 73,000 fugitives in 2023, and it concluded a multi-agency operation focusing on violent fugitives and drug pushers that had 600 arrests alone. Here with an update, the director of the U.S. Marshals Service, Ronald Davis. Mr. Davis, good to have you with us. Thank you, Thomas. Good to be with you. And I want to start with that number of 73,000 fugitives. Was that up from the year before, down? What are the trends here in arrests that you are obligated to make every year? So that would be slightly down, but I think for us, Tom, we look at what the 73,000 represents. So, for example, in that number is close to 6,000 homicide suspects, some 10,000 people associated with gangs. And, and equally important is that that number represents really great coordination with our state and local partners. In other words, it is really data-driven. We're focusing on, as you may have heard the Attorney General talk about, focusing on the drivers of violent crime that the most communities are a handful of people that are exacting a lot of violence, terrorizing the community. So we work with our state and locals to target them so that we can remove them when they have warrants from the community. When I look at that number, I, I just see a lot of great work that the deputies and our task resources are doing. And how does the decision get made as to who does an arrest in a given case? Why the U.S. Marshal Service and not, you know, the New Hampshire State Police, for example? That's a great question. And since 2000, there was an act passed, a Presidential Threat Act, that gave us authorization for the United States Marshal Service. And the key word is to assist our state and local partners with the execution of their warrants. And so that request comes from the local agency. It would be that local PD, that state police, that's usually working in partnership with us uh, on a daily basis anyway, saying these are the warrants we would want your assistance in. And a part of that, Tom, as you know, a lot of crime now, and especially those that are trying to evade capture, respect no boundaries, so they'll move and hide all over the country and the globe. And they know we have the resources to track them across the United States, and we have tentacles all over the globe so that we can find them. So it starts with the local agency asking us, will you help us with this warrant? And then we basically partner with them to find that fugitive. And how do the cases get divided up, say, between immigration cases, where it would be ICE, and some communities don't cooperate with ICE, versus the Marshal Service? Because any of these gang members, you mentioned 10,000 of them, we know that among the people coming illegally, 
there are some gang members in there. So we don't track our fugitives, our warrants are not based on uh, immigration status. So, for example, if the local PD says they're looking for a homicide suspect, what we would focus on is that the person is wanted for a homicide suspect, who he or she is, and then start the investigation to find that. But it's not based on immigration status. I think for us, we just don't track that number. We, we track the offense, and if the agency is asking us for assistance for that clearance, we will then help recover that fugitive. All right. And when you do arrest someone, where do they go? Do they go to federal facilities or to the local or state facilities? What happens to them when you nab somebody? So a little bit of both. We have two types of warrants that we will serve. The federal warrants are those that we are by statute are mandatory to execute on behalf of the court. So the court issues a warrant, a federal warrant, and then the marshal service helps retrieve those fugitives or apprehend them. And then we would bring them to federal court where they would then be in our custody until some type of adjudication of the case. For the local and state, it depends. If we find them in a local community, we would turn them over to the local agency doing the investigation or the local jail so they can be processed through the state. If they're in a different state, then we would put them in the local jail in that state, and then it's up to that agency then to work out the extradition between states. So pretty much, if I were to summarize it, our local and state warrants go back to the agency that issued the warrant, and the federal ones would come into the custody of the United States Marshal Service and the various facilities that we have around the country. It sounds like this can be dangerous work because you're not arresting wallflowers that go willingly all the time. No, I, I, I would actually know we're not arresting wallflowers. Yes, it's heck of dangerous in the sense that you're right. When you talk about 6,000 homicide suspects, robbery suspects, people involved in narcotic trade, unfortunately, that's a lot of high-risk activity. And, you know, recently we just did a three-year review of our officer-involved shootings, our deadly encounters. And during that period of time, we had 47 times, 47 separate incidents in which deputies, task force officers were shot at, came under gunfire. I've been the director for two years, a little bit over two years now, and maybe in two weeks from now, I will visit a sheriff's deputy that was shot and injured, and that will be the eighth task force officer, deputy, or local officer that I will visit as a director that have been shot and wounded in the line of duty executing the warrants or the marshal's mission. So it is very, very dangerous. It is therefore, as a director, my number one priority is to make sure that the officer's safety, morale, and wellness is there, because our deputies and our admin professionals, we cannot take care of the American people if we don't take care of them first. And I think we have to make sure that they're safe, strong, well, and supported in order to serve the American people. We're speaking with Ronald Davis. He's director of the U.S. Marshals Service. And what are some of your HR challenges? I mean, different agencies have problems hiring people, retaining people. What's it like for the marshals? What are your priorities there? So I think it would be fair to say that recruitment is a little bit more challenging today than it was when I first came in some years ago. I'm an age myself, and I became a cop in 1985 in the beautiful city of Oakland. But although with the challenges, we still have a pretty high interest. People still want to be a deputy U.S. marshal. They want to be part of the marshal family. Our retention is very good, that people, once they come here, they become part of the family, and many, not most, will retire. I think the challenge for us moving forward is making sure that we stay attractive to a new generation, making sure that we can respond to the needs of a new generation, making sure that the agency maintains a high-quality candidate, a very diverse candidate pool that we should take advantage of, and making sure that we're prepared for the challenges of tomorrow. If there was one thing that frustrates me the most time, it would be we do sometimes move at the speed of government, and which means we can go relatively slow. And so we, we always are looking for ways to make it more efficient 
but we have to do so without compromising the vetting process or the quality of deputies we're bringing in. We have the most bright, intelligent, critical thinkers in the profession, and I don't want to do anything to compromise that, so that does take time. But other than that, I think we are doing well. We are hiring, we are reducing our vacancies, and we are continuing to build a workforce that is uh, doing a tremendous job. And one increasing demand on the marshal service has been to guard judges because I guess it's a sign of some larger ill in society that judges are less safe than they used to be. And there's been some lurid incidents there. And what's your sense of what's going on there? And then I have a follow-up question on law enforcement itself. So the current threat environment, I, I just recently had the ability to speak in front of our House Judiciary Committee, the subcommittee on crime and surveillance, and I'll share with you what I shared with them. I am deeply concerned about the increases of threats against our judges and court officials. In fact, over the last three years, it has more than doubled. The concern is such that I would have to say that the current and evolving threat environment constitutes a substantial risk to our democracy. We cannot have a judiciary that cannot operate independent and operate under the threat of violence. And so it is a top priority. We are now putting more resources to attack this than we have in most people's memories that have been here because it is that critical to our democracy. And so it is more than doubled is problematic. And what we're seeing with the nature of it is also concerning is that we're seeing more and more people resulting to either violent rhetoric or actually acts of violence because they're opposing a court decision, an opinion, a government action. And I'm just going to kind of paraphrase uh, Dr. King, if I may. It seems like we have not learned how to disagree without being violently disagreeable. And we need to get back to some levels of civility. We need to get back to acknowledging that words matter, especially for those people that carry influence to others. That comments made, even if they're not threats themselves, but they're violent rhetoric, they're targeting individuals. Sometimes people act by themselves to take that on, and it turns into threats and violence. So it is a top priority for the Marshal Service. And I think it's fair to say that in the last few recent years, there's been a terrible diminution of respect for law enforcement itself in the country. You say you became a cop in 85. Well, I'm quite a bit older. And I remember, you know, if the cop looked at you cross-eyed, you pulled your car over in town because he'd call your dad if you were speeding, you know, that type of thing. But how does that affect the marshal service? And what do you see the trends in police respect and law enforcement respect? So I'll start with the safety part, if I may. I'm definitely seeing an increase in assaults and attacks on law enforcement. I think we're seeing that across the board, although we are starting to see some promising declines over the last year or so. But we're starting to see it. We definitely see an increase over the past few years. And this is why we have to invest heavily in officer safety and training and equipment and technology. Find all ways possible to make it safer to reduce that risk. We cannot eliminate the risk, and I think our deputies and law enforcement officers all over the country acknowledge the inherent risk that goes with the job, but we can do everything in our power to reduce that risk and mitigate the risk, if you will. With regards to respect, I think what that offers right now is, a, is not just a challenge, but I would submit that it offers a unique opportunity. It is an opportunity for us to engage our communities, to show our communities what value we bring to them, how we can enhance community safety, the quality of life and the partnerships that we can restore that kind of relationship that automatically garners the respect that I think everyone wants, whether you're from the community or you're a law enforcement officer. And I think the more we engage, the more we get to know each other. And I would just say this to the American people, the more you get to know my deputies, you'll have respect for them, you'll love them, because they're men and women who are just really committed to trying to help others and willing to sacrifice things that most of us are not. 
we have to have that engagement for people to see that. So when people talk about that, you know, the relationship now or the kind of the negative atmosphere around law enforcement, I, I'm a push and say that may be true, but there's an opportunity in there, an opportunity to really start establishing strong relationships in the community. And how often do the various federal law enforcement components get together and exchange best practices? I've lost track of how many federal law enforcement agencies there are, but lots of agencies have their own, and then there's marshals and border patrol and so on. Do you all have a forum by which you can exchange best practices? Let me start with the Department of Justice. I would say yes. So my esteemed colleagues at, in the Department of Justice would include, obviously, the DEA, the ATF, the FBI, Bureau of Prisons, but we also have partners with uh, Office of Justice Programs, the COPS Office, Criminal Division. So I think we come together uh, regularly to talk about, one, what's happening around the country, that we're targeting, using our resources based on data and embracing those evidence-based programs. Two, that what trends we're seeing. So a trend, for example, for DEA with fentanyl poisoning may impact violent crime in the area, which may impact the need for us to run an operation to support that. So we're always linking. And the same thing with ATF is to make sure as we recover 6,000 firearms with our state local partners, that they're all being entered into NIBIS, to the national tracking system, that where the left hand's talking to the right hand, that we become complementary to the law enforcement picture, if you will, around the country. So we do that. And we also do that across the department. So we do have a lot of engagement with DHS, Department of Homeland Security, Homeland Security Investigations, Customs and Border Protection. I don't want to miss people, ICE. I, I think there's always room to engage more, but I think we are really committed across the board to communicate, to coordinate, so that we're force multipliers and not redundant or competitive. Hopefully that that makes sense. Sure. And in an earlier stint at the Justice Department, you had to do with the COPS program, the community-oriented policing types of initiatives that were going on. And fair to say that federal law enforcement practices can often be models for those at the local and state level? In many cases, it can be. I mean, we invest in good policy research and practices. And what the COPS office can do is not just what we can model to federal government, to federal agencies, which I think we do a great job, but how you can also learn what are the best practices throughout the 16,000 local, state, and tribal law enforcement agencies. So that if we embrace a decentralized model of policing in the United States, then not everyone's going to have the capacity to have a research and development vision, a small agency, but a cop's office, an office of justice programs that can learn that a program in Oakland, I'm going to pick Oakland, obviously, Oakland, California, may help out a city in Texas, and that you can do the research, make sure it's evidence-based, and we can share the information. That way we are, for example, the lessons learned for apprehending 73,000 fugitives. And over the last three years, you know, four years, over a quarter of a million fugitives, those lessons learned can turn into outstanding training and tactics and investigations. So we have a Center for Excellence in uh, Officer Safety and Wellness. So all that can be put into so that we keep learning as a profession, not just the federal government, but our local and state partners. And that's a really important time when you have the model that we have so that local communities may have only five officers, but they should be able to tap into the collective knowledge of all 16,000 or the collective knowledge of billions of dollars of investments over 50 years of research and development. That's how we maintain our profession. And I wouldn't want to let you go without talking about the latest kind of big gambit that just concluded a couple of weeks ago, Operation Wash Out. And we should say wash out is two words, not wash out. And you arrested 600 people, but this was a big interagency effort. 
Uh, just give us the uh, quick story of what happened there. So Operation Washout is uh, one of several fugitive investigation operations we run. Right, We have Operation Washout, which in this one, which you're talking about, was a 12-city operation that resulted in over 600 apprehensions. Strong partnership with uh, DEA is, was based on a lot of drug offenses and fentanyl poisoning. We have Operation Triple Beam that sometimes includes more cities for an extended period of time. We have Operation North Star that are very specific targeting cities with the highest level of homicides or homicide rates. So these operations are tremendous because a couple of things are required. They should be data-driven. The strategy should be part of a larger evidence-based strategy. They require a strong partnership with our local, state, and tribal partners. They, all of them require community engagement. And I think we are then focusing on those that we believe are the drivers of crime, and that would be part of the attorney general strategy. And that means good coordination, not with just our law enforcement agency, but also our prosecutors. The U.S. Attorney's Office, in many cases, are, are re- really the main coordinators for this in the district, and they also do a tremendous job. Anything we can anticipate coming up? Where, where you're gonna, I guess you can't really signal where you plan to concentrate. I'm going to give a pretty loud signal because I want our judiciary to know this. I want the American people to know this. We are going to continue to focus heavily on judicial security. Our democracy demands that we protect the third branch of government, so we will do that. And as mentioned, we will always be all there to contribute towards violent reduction. So it is our goal for 24 to enhance our, our ability to provide security for the judiciary, to increase our capacity to take more and more warrants from our state and local partners. And then the other one is to make sure that I don't have to visit any more deputies or task force officers that are shot and wounded, so that we will make a heavy investment in time and resources and making sure our deputies and our personnel are safe. And I think those three things, if we achieve that in 24, then the agency will, will have had a very good year and we'll continue the historic uh, success of the United States Marshal Service. And just another question on that other branch of government, Congress. Nobody has their 2024 appropriations as we speak, and Lord knows when they will. But in general, do you feel that you have the resources you need? What would you ask for if you could increase resources? What are the priorities for what you need in funding? The 24 priorities we have is outlined in the president's 24 budget. And I think that budget captures the resources that we've asked for to look at the growing and evolving threat picture. So Congress has that budget. They're they're going through the budget process right now. I think when we do get a budget, the challenge of any director or leader is going to be to work with the budget you have to prioritize to make sure that those priorities are are met. So as we move forward with judicial security, that cannot be lessened. We have to continue down that road. Anything else we need to know about the Marshal Service before we let you go? No, I I was kind of close with this. I've been in law enforcement now for, as you mentioned, since 1985. And I would say it is, in this agency, it is a tremendous agency. I think sometimes people, I appreciate the uh, opportunity to talk about us. People don't understand, sometimes don't really appreciate everything that we do. They know about the fugitives because we have some good stories to tell, but I don't know if they realize that for our judicial security. And I like to capture us in, in some simple terms. It's besides protecting our judiciary, we have this very unique picture, if you will, that we are one hand responsible for tracking down the most heinous violators in our country. And at the same time, we've been authorized and we're now helping to recover our most precious because we have operations now and authority since 2015 to help locate and recover missing and endangered children. And so when you look at those two missions, you look at the idea of removing those who are causing issues in our community and then recovering our children that are in many cases exploited, that are victims of trafficking, 
I think that kind of captures just how important this agency is to the American people in addition to protecting the third branch of government. So any opportunity to shed a light of what we do, any opportunity for me to brag about the men and women of this agency is always appreciated. Ronald Davis is director of the U.S. Marshal Service. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. We appreciate it. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, will Congress get a budget deal done with only days before the first shutdown deadline? This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The House returns to Washington on Wednesday. The Friday after that, this Friday, the first of two deadlines for avoiding a partial government shutdown. This, as the ranks of House leadership seem to be melting away, we get an update from WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. Could they have devised a shorter deadline for themselves in coming back? (laughs) A lot of people are asking that very question, wondering why they took off for close to two weeks and then left themselves with only basically 72 hours to reach this agreement on yet another avoiding yet another partial government shutdown. And while there has been some activity behind the scenes and the appropriators have been doing things, uh, really people were just kind of scratching their heads at why this scheduling occurred this way because they've really put themselves up against it once again. And a lot of people, both on the Republican and on the Democratic side, are just getting tired of these continuing resolutions. And now the fact that we're uh, headed into March and soon we'll actually be heading up right before the uh, State of the Union address by the president, which is actually on March 7th, uh, it's just amazing that we're going to be talking about the next fiscal year while we still haven't wrapped up the current fiscal year. And agencies, I think, are starting to speak up a little bit more about the fact that continuing resolutions are not ideal for the planning and execution of vital programs that they're charged with doing. Right. And one of the big ones that we heard from uh, in this past week was the Pentagon, which sometimes doesn't really want to weigh in on a lot of these things, but it was pretty clear that they do not want yet another round of continuing resolutions that they just feel that it just cuts into any kind of planning that uh, military planners can do. One of the comments came from uh, the Pentagon spokeswoman, Sabrina Singh, who says that they just can't keep operating this way. No amount of money can buy back the time we lose when we are forced to operate under continuing resolutions. If you add up the total time spent under a CR going back to 2011, we've spent nearly five years under CRs. That puts our national security at risk and prevents the department from modernizing. And related to that, military construction funding ends on March 1st, and then the funding for the rest of the Pentagon expires on March 8th. So a lot of defense planners really upset, frankly, about this, that they are once again trying to move the proverbial aircraft carrier, almost literally in this case, uh, once again to try to accommodate the fact that the Congress just can't reach its deadlines. Yeah, the military construction is a big issue because of the just deteriorating condition of so many facilities and the backlog keeps growing and growing, I guess. Right. I mean, that's one of the areas that uh, Virginia Senator Tim Kaine, for example, who's on the Senate Armed Services Committee, has worked really hard on the fact that uh, he hears all the time about these deteriorating military facilities for the military men and women. And let's face it, when you're trying to recruit people into the various armed services and then you can't even provide 
decent housing for them when they're under all these challenges and having to move from station to station. It's really a big concern for a lot of people uh, in the military and among members of Congress. And speaking of the military, there is the whole Ukraine situation, which is really getting drawn out, dragged out here. What are the prospects? People are really scratching their heads at the United States in some ways. Right. This is a situation where people predicted a year ago that there would be some waning support for Ukraine, but I don't think that a lot of people thought it would come to this head at this point. And we really saw this in the past week, all these forces coming together in in the fact that uh, you had the Munich Security Conference where the lawmakers from the United States were getting an earful from their European colleagues saying, what are you actually going to do? You actually even had European leaders telling them that they were concerned about what kind of maneuvers that were going to happen in the U.S. House. That's how closely it's being followed overseas. And right now, it does appear that House Speaker Mike Johnson is in a bit of a quandary, as he often is, uh, because of that incredibly tight margin of error that he has. He's got a hardcore group of people that do not want any aid to Ukraine and, in fact, have threatened to kick him out of the speakership if he brings up something on the floor. And then you have a much larger number of people who would like to actually approve aid for Ukraine. And then in the middle of all this, uh, there's actually a new proposal within the House from uh, a bipartisan proposal that would scale back the amount of aid to Ukraine, but make it primarily just military and then a variety of other things. But it would be a smaller package than the $95 billion package that's already been passed by the Senate. And then, of course, you have a lot of proponents of that package who say, look, the House should just take this up. So right now, it's a real tough situation. It'll be interesting to see how Mike Johnson, who has kept the door slightly open to approving Ukraine aid, but he clearly would have to have a lot of support from Democrats in the House. We're speaking with Mitchell Miller, Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. And the back to the office tug of war back and forth keeps going on. Now the IRS is the latest agency to try to get at least management back. I think the they want them three out of the five days. And this is a concern of mostly Republicans also. Right. And it's, again, like you said, this tug of war, they're trying to get more and more of these people back. Now, of course, as you alluded to, this is only a limited number of Treasury Department and IRS officials basically in management. But it's, again, to try to at least show an example that here are some of the people that are going back, and for the rest of the people, you need to look at this example. Uh, as you said, they're going to be required essentially to be back half of the time uh, during any month. But this does not start until May 5th, so actually after the latest uh, tax season. Um, but they really want to get a lot of these people back into these offices. And in this in this case, this will affect a lot of people here in the Washington area, uh, including people that have telework agreements, uh, as well as those who are working at IRS headquarters or in New Carrollton at the federal building. Um, but it, again, it's this big push. A lot of Republican lawmakers, as you mentioned, are still trying to get more and more people back into the offices. And of course, not just at Treasury and IRS, but uh, throughout the government to various agencies. And we were talking about Speaker Johnson and whether he would retain his seat as speaker. The last one, Kevin McCarthy, was not only booted out of the speaker's job, he left Congress right then and there. Right. And this is happening with a lot of House committee members. And you've been tracking the shrinking leadership going on there. 
Right. It's really interesting what's happened. I mean, since Kevin McCarthy has left Congress, dozens of other Republicans, as well as Democrats, have decided they've had enough. And what's interesting about that is many of the Republicans that are leaving are chairman of major House committees. They include Kathy McMorris-Rogers, who's the chair of the House Energy and Commerce Committee, which, as you know, covers a very, very broad breadth of possible topics for investigations and hearings. And then you also had Mark Green, the chair of the Homeland Security Committee, announcing he's leaving right after, frankly, the vote related to the impeachment of Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas. And then at the top, you have House Speaker Mike Johnson, who is very much in a precarious position, I think it's fair to say. As members of Congress were leaving for their break, uh, we spoke to a lot of them as they were heading out of the Capitol. And it's clear that some of them are having buyer's remorse about kicking out Kevin McCarthy, because for whatever problems that the GOP conference had, he was able, as one lawmaker said, to hold together the conference, even with all these differences. Whereas once he left, as this lawmaker said, he essentially allowed it to have a crowbar to wide open, rip open all of these differences within the Republican conference. And we're going to see more of that this week because you still have the House Freedom Caucus who just says, we're not really all that concerned about a government shutdown. And if it shuts down, hey, no big deal. And other parts of the conference who say this is a huge political liability for us. What we're hearing is that a lot of people just don't think House Speaker Mike Johnson is leading the Republicans and is more kind of a follower in some respects, allowing them to air their grievances. But as much as they moan and groan about the fact that they don't want to be pulled one way or the other, they do need some kind of leadership. Yes, yeah, sounds like he's hanging on by his fingernails on the back of a runaway jalopy, I guess, is more than, <laughs> more than leading anything, as they say. Oh, my Yorkus. Mitchell Miller is Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. Thanks so much, as always. You, you bet. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. A panel of experts has spent more than a year and a half examining the Pentagon's decades-old budgeting system and figuring out how to fix it. So what did they come up with? Well, we're about to find out. The Commission on Planning, Programming, Budgeting, and Execution Reform is set to deliver its final report next week. We don't have all the details yet, but some hints have emerged about the direction the Commission will head. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu has a preview. The panel will make 28 separate recommendations in its final report next week, largely centered on making the system more agile. After over a year of study and more than 400 interviews with experts and budget practitioners, one of the Commission's main conclusions is that while the PPB process likely made sense when it was created in the early 1960s, there are huge aspects that don't make sense for 21st century problems. Bob Hale is a former DOD comptroller who now leads the Commission. The Commission believes that the environment for PPB has changed in some important ways, some of its national security, and now we have China as a near-peer competitor, uh, Russia with naked aggression, Mideast issues, North Korea is still out there. And this is going to demand continuing changes, both in our military capability and our military posture. And the Commission believes that the current version of PBB is just not strong enough uh, or not correctly designed uh, to uh, provide effective support to that kind of change. 
And so I expect the commission will uh, make a number of recommendations about the structure of PPBE. Hale speaking earlier this month at an event hosted by the Rand Corporation. In an interim report published last August, the commission made several recommendations that it says DOD could start implementing internally right away. But the final version, scheduled for release on March 6th, will also ask Congress to make changes, including how it apportions funding to DOD. I expect the commission to recommend transforming the way the budget is structured, uh, both in terms of how it's presented to Congress, but also we will recommend how Congress appropriates money. Uh, And just very briefly, not uh, so much of a focus on appropriation titles like procurement and more focus on major capability areas like ground maneuver vehicles or surface ships, which gets you closer. It's not a strategy, but it gets you closer to being able to relate uh, the budget uh, to strategy. The focus on broader capability areas would go hand-in-hand with another recommendation that would consolidate the total number of individual line items that make up the defense budget every year. In theory, that would give the military services and their program managers more flexibility to make changes in their spending in the year of execution. Hale says the commission thinks it's found ways to add that type of flexibility while also making congressional appropriators comfortable that they're still getting the kind of oversight they need. He says similar safeguards would need to be built into another commission proposal that would start to let DOD begin new programs while it's operating under a continuing resolution. That's something that's currently prohibited. On the stability side, late budgets, I think, are without doubt a key problem. We've had one defense budget approved on time in the last 10 years. And I don't, unfortunately, see uh, any moderation in, in that trend. Commission debated this at some length, you know, asking ourselves, well, if we found ways to mitigate the adverse effects of continuing resolution, we'd make them more likely. I think the commission decided, unfortunately, they are very likely because they're occurring because of factors that that really are outside the scope of the commission, broad disagreements in Congress about where we ought to spend the nation's money. So what we'll propose on March 6th is is building on some good work that DOD has done in getting uh, some new start authority to go further for both new starts and and program changes, uh, allow them under continuing resolutions, though with some strict limits designed uh, to preserve congressional oversight. Because if we lose sight of that, folks, we're not going to get anything out of this commission. Despite the need for PPPE reform, the unpredictability that comes with those perennial delays in enacting annual funding measures are currently a much larger problem than the general slowness of the PPPE process, according to Frank Kendall, the Secretary of the Air Force. I came into office two and a half years ago, just just over two and a half years ago. And I knew when I walked in the door that we had to address modernization that we had to identify the next generation of equipment we needed and get on with acquiring it. But that was a very high priority. China was racing to field things that were designed to defeat the United States' ability to project power, and they were well down that road. And we ended up with about $30 billion over the five-year plan to, to address the operational imperatives. The first installment of that is in the 24 budget. It's about $5 billion. I have been waiting for a year now since we submitted that budget for the Congress to appropriate it. There is a chance that Congress will never appropriate the 24 budget. And I will have been in office for three and a half years and never seen a dime of the money I need to be competitive with China. That's a crime, and it needs to be addressed. So I would back up from the whole PPP thing for a minute and say we need to do our job in this country and fund the military to the level that needs to be funded to be competitive. 
And all the tweaks in the world of how we do the process are not going to solve that problem. Meanwhile, commissioners say a surprising amount of their attention was spent on the need to overhaul and consolidate the thousands of IT systems the department uses to plan and build its budget each year. The complexity of those systems made it hard for even the commission itself to get basic answers about DOD's budget process. Eric Fanning, the former Army secretary who also serves on the commission, says those business systems are a big source of frustration for Congress, too. None of this really matters much or will go very far if we don't also make Congress's job easier. In a more agile environment, it has to be easier for Congress than it is now. And that's part of why you have to dive into as much as many of us have tried to get away from these business systems um, that power things because they're antiquated, they're too diffuse makes it hard um, for the department to know what's going on, let alone communicate. The, the inclination in DOD, and we've all been a part of it, uh, to, to think that they are unique. And so they take what are these best practices and then modify them. And, and I think it's the root cause of why we're in problems with these business systems, um, which then cause the problems with the relationship to the Hill because we can't pull good data and share it, not just in a usable way, but in a timely way, so that it's still relevant. Jared Serbu, Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Check out Jared's story at federalnewsnetwork.com.